0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox Centering the Marginalized in Mormonism Derek, how you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well Well enough, yeah, it sounds like Yeah, well enough <laughs> Yeah, I've not been feeling well, but um, What did I do this week that was cool? I forgot <laughs>
0: It was so cool that you forgot, huh? Something But you got cool things going on this weekend, right? Like your ward Christmas parties right. tonight?
1: ward Christmas party
0: Yes So that's Yeah That sounds exciting Ish. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. I haven't been to a Christmas party in ages, so like I don't I really don't know what to expect. Uh, as far as war Christmas parties Lots go. Lots of little kids and food. All right. That sounds like a good time to me. Lots of food and kids. Yeah. It's just gonna be more caroling for me this weekend. Like right after this, I got a rehearsal for our own Christmas program and Christmas concert. Then I got my temple shift. And then I got a caroling gig. So it's going to be like, it's going to be a long day. I cannot wait to like, you ever like wake up some days and just already you're like, I can't wait to go to sleep tonight. I can't. (laughs) Like today's one of those days. And even though I did everything I could to be ready for all the events of today, like I got all my outfits in my car. I walked out the house this morning. I headed over here and I was like, I forgot my music folder. So like, I don't have any music today. And that's, it's gonna be an interesting day. That that's all. I'm you can to say. borrow
1: at the rehearsal, right?
0: Oh no, it's not even the rehearsal. I'm worried about like the rehearsal. They're gonna have plenty of music there. It's the caroling. Game. Oh, that music.
1: Okay. Yes, that music. Oh. I don't have
0: any of that music, but I have been doing that particular group for like three or four years now, and I more or less have memorized all of our music. However, I know there's music I haven't memorized, and that is going to. That is going to be an issue probably. So we'll, like I said, it's going to be an interesting day. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But anyway, with that, let's go ahead and move into the news for this week. Quite a bit. Well, a couple of pretty particularly noteworthy things happened this week. One of those was the Ancestry.com changes. Did you, did you catch that?
1: Yeah. All the right. Family
0: FamilySearch.org. FamilySearch.org. It wasn't Ancestry. It was FamilySearch.org. Right. Um. But, yeah, you want to just go over what basically that change is? So what happened, and we knew that this change was coming
1: for for quite some time, but they released the functionality to add a same-gender spouse both for living and deceased people, and this is the church's own uh, structure for for recording family history work and even for doing ordinance work. Right. So this is a big deal. I mean, it's not obviously everything. Uh-huh. But I think it's an important step. And I think it testifies to the fact that the people who are trying to wage a cultural war against us are losing.
2: Yeah.
0: It's just like, guess what? We can document our relationships in the church's own family history interface. So, you know, what you're going to mm-hmm. do
1: now? And, you know, there, there might not be a lot of people who are in same-gender relationships who are active in the church, but this will be... Helpful for those family members who like have a gay son or yeah. a, a gay daughter who's married. They can add their their daughter-in-law or son-in-law to the to their family tree. And I think that's important for active believing members of the church to do. Right. That they can actually see their family the way it really exists in real life reflected in the church's system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's super important and super validating. So it's a big step. It's a really big step.
1: Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I think did did you know any notice any pushback because they always say don't read the comments. <laughs> but I'm sure that there's people saying, uh, you know, this is awful and this is a caving into the world and this is all sorts of stuff. Even within the church.
0: Yeah. Well, particularly within the church. Yeah. Like That is that is the only place I've seen. You know, negative comments. Yeah. Now, I've more or less purged the majority of that neg- negativity from my own feed, but I have seen some of the comments on, uh, you know, the church's own page or on Family Search's own page. I don't remember where I saw it, but, you know, just a couple of, you know, fundamentalists being like, this is fundamentally against what the church is about or the church's doctrine. Like, it's just that stuff. Like, I don't even pay it that much mind right now because. You know, these are I mean, there's always going to be some pushback against it, but the pushback hasn't been so loud that I have been personally been discouraged or that any, you know, gay folks I know have been discouraged by it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's been pushback. I have noticed it, but it hasn't been loud and it hasn't been significant. Not 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 to me anyway.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let me just take a detour because uh, this is something I don't think I've said here on the podcast before. But one very interesting question: I don't really run into a lot of these anti-gay people in person and and have a, a you know a, an actual real conversation with them. Well, yeah,
0: Mormons aren't that confrontational when you really get down to it. But if
1: I did, here is one question that I would love to ask them: I would ask them what, when? It, tell me what date in history, exactly? What date in year? When did same gender relationships? Become forbidden in our church's history they won't be able to tell you a date Mm. Okay, because you can't date it to the proclamation on the family because that's just kind of Reemphasizing what was already bubbling up, right? You can't date it back to DNC 132 which was revealed in 1843 because there's nothing in there about same-gender relationships, right? Basically, their only option is to say, "Well, it's been always been forbidden since April sixth, eighteen thirty, the foundation of the church." But that actually puts them in a big bind because then their position isn't based on revelation; it's based on assuming and inheriting everything that was swimming around in the surrounding culture. Yeah, that there was no same gender marriage. So they're saying, "Look, if they say April sixth, eighteen thirty, then they admit that we haven't had any revelation." Mm. And if they try to find some other date, none of those other dates would work because there was no revelation that actually specified and clearly and specifically talked about now same gender relationships are forbidden. There is no related there is none. Right. So according to my view, asking them this one question puts them in a a bind that they that they well can't get out of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I never That's a good point, Derek it's a really good point i never thought about asking that particular question or thought about what day was it where we decided yeah, like give me a day in a year yeah like because we don't have it we don't have yeah it. i've i've more or less embraced the fact that we just don't have the doctrine or we don't have any substantial teaching on this particular matter but that is an even more mm-hmm. pressing and deliberate question when do we implement this doctrine when do we implement right. this t- teaching and yeah, we can't do it. Right. We really cannot it, do it. And what
1: it proves then is that we've just got a tradition of the father's situation going on, something we've inherited from the surrounding culture. Um, and there there can be parallels with, with racism and sexism which have crept into the church, uh-huh. uh, not through revelation.
0: Just, through, just, just through, through
1: culture. Yeah. I'm like, that happens. Yeah. And if you can't tell me the date when we clearly have these relationships forbidden, then you've got a problem yeah, and you're admitting that this isn't based on solid, direct, clear, specific revelation from God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that is, that just goes back to something I think we've said on the show before, just the luxury of privilege is not having to know why you look down on other folks or why you deny certain people personhood. Like Mm -hmm. the luxury of privilege is that I haven't had to think nearly as long or as hard about the implications of our, doctrine or teaching surrounding the lgbtq community as much as the people that are actually in that community had, Mm -hmm. and the fact that i've able been able to not have to think about that and the fact that i don't know as much about that is directly indicative of the or directly correlated with the fact that i'm not part of that group Mm -hmm. and i don't have to think about it you know you get that with leaders you get that with straight members you get that with a lot of different folks Mm -hmm. anything else you want to say about that No, I'm sure there's a
1: lot of other things I could say, but, but but that gives me hope for our church because I can't think of any other conservative church in the country that, that has done anything like that. Like look at the Southern Baptists or the evangelicals. None of them have like, Ooh, we're going to have a thing on our own website that allows you to add a same gender partner. Look, I think there's, there's ways that the spirit is creeping in, uh, into our church in, in new and vibrant ways And And that's actually what we'll get in the Christmas
0: story is God moves in very surprising ways and always has done so. Looking forward to that conversation. In the meantime, we have one more more story we want to address. And uh, that was what happened with... And that was with some uh, statements made by Ed Smart, the father of Elizabeth Smart, earlier this week. Now, he said a couple of things that are worth mentioning, one being that there is no cure for being gay, but there was a real um, pot stir of a statement he made that mm-hmm. seemed to polarize a lot of folks in the church with regard to what he what he meant by that. Now I'm just paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of his ordeal of coming out as a gay man was more difficult than the experience of losing, you know, his daughter to a kidnapping and having her subsequently be, you know sexually abused for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of people kind of took this to mean that Ed Smart was saying that his experience was harder than Elizabeth Smart's experience. Like that was one big one big thing that was like happening in the Mormon blogosphere or just online in general. But there is an alternate interpretation and one that Ed Smart seems to validate himself, which is that he is simply saying that his experience um with regard to his coming out, was more difficult than his experience with regard to losing Elizabeth Smart. Like, does yeah. that make sense?
1: Right, right. And I think in context, he he was talking about th- – th- now this is my interpretation. Uh-huh. But I think in context, he was talking about the social and communal support. Because when you lose your daughter, you have everyone – Unconditionally supporting you and right. giving you everything you need and just really coming around him, but that's not that's actually the reverse for coming out as gay. You lose the people closest to you. Right, right. And it and he he's lost a lot um, his his family job faith community mm-hmm. all the all these things. And so, while I while I personally wouldn't have chosen the words he used yeah. because of how they could be misconstrued, I don't yeah. think that he's this evil, awful person that we should now just reach to the most judgmental and unflattering interpretation of his words. Right. Um. I I will say that when I I listened to some of some, to an interview with him, and I get where he's coming from, but I I also thought that that he was very sad and very pessimistic and and that which is completely valid given where he is sure. in his life. Sure. But the the view that I would like to see uh raised up is also one of optimism and hope and pride and he did he didn't actually seem to be cuz if you're still trying to wrestle with if it's a choice or if it's a, can be cured, you're not there yet. Uh-huh. Right? Like I wouldn't even ask if I could be cured. Like who would want to that doesn't even make sense. I I don't even think to ask that. Right right, um, But it's it's really tough And we just have to believe and trust And understand with empathy People on their journeys Every, every journey is going to be different It's going to be messy It's going to be complex And uh, we should hold some empathy there But I, I should also add that, that gay white men of means Get a lot of empathy and visibility In, in our church We have to look Not forget um women trans people people of color who are LGBTQ and uh lift up those stories because I, I think those stories don't get a lot of empathy and I have a th- I have a theory why because if you're a, if you're a gay white man in the church you have everything except for just one thing and if only that one thing were fixed then oh you'd have everything yeah and I think that's what what makes people so sad. is like, oh, this could have been whatever. This could have been the next GA. This could have been the next millionaire. This could have been the next whatever. Um, but but we have to really critically assess and uh, analyze our assumptions that we bring to the, to these kind of uh, discussions.
0: Certainly, certainly. I thought about that if there was like a layer of, and you know, you've already brought this up, but I thought if there was a layer of privilege that came with Ed Smart's story, I, I didn't want to delve too much into that because it, it, it's already difficult dealing with all that you know, Ed Smart has dealt with in coming out, in losing his family, in losing his faith. like There's a lot of loss to parse through here, you know what I'm saying? And it wasn't something I wanted to delve too much into unless, of course, this whole interpretation of or the more radicalized interpretation of his words was, in fact, the proper one. But I just do not believe that to be the case. I, I definitely mm-hmm. tend to lean more toward uh, your interpretation of his words and his own clarification of, you know, the interpretation of his words. I wouldn't have said it like that, like you said. But this is this is what he's dealing with, and I think he just expressed it the best way he knew how at that particular point. And I do want to afford him that grace regardless mm-hmm. of whatever privilege he's experiencing right now he is still at this moment going through it and i want to hold space for that
1: yeah and also he he also and it, this needs to be named too is he doesn't say that he left he he stepped away from the church he says the church stepped away from him and i think that needs to be named because we have so many lgbt people who end up disconnected from the church and i personally wish that weren't true right um, now I respect other people's journeys and doing what they need to do to take care of themselves, and and but I really would like to see more people stay in the church and join in the church who are LGBTQ. Certainly. And um, yeah, we're if we're the church of happy endings, like Elder Holland said, and we're the church, like where where's our chance? We don't have an equal chance in the church, mm. and we should. And there's no re no no theological or scriptural or doctrinal reason why we shouldn't right right all are alike unto god i mean it's in the scriptures i know yeah
0: (laughs) in more ways like we've, we've said it many times but there are several there are several scriptures that talk about all being alike unto god god being no respecter of persons or just everybody being entitled to the love of christ there are scores of verses on that very subject in fact the greatest law is basically that love that we should love god and love our neighbors as ourselves and when it comes to even discussing in any context in any context homosexuality there is sorry being gay like i got to purge that word from my vocabulary so pardon me for that but yeah
1: we don't use that word anymore yes i mean it used to be the
0: right word it used to be but right now yeah. it's not the right word Anyway, um, my point is just saying we, we can't ignore the scores of verses that talk about this very concept of all being alike unto God and of God giving everybody a chance of the atonement being accessible to everybody in some form or fashion. Just so we can quote seven verses that say anything about gay identity, you know, we like cherry pick these very few verses that we can count on one or two hands to justify our bigotry or our close-mindedness or our ignorance so that we can ignore all these other verses that say that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, mm-hmm. that say that mm-hmm. we should allow everybody the same opportunity, that say God is no respecter of persons. It's just one of those luxuries of privilege that we that we take simply because of our own ignorance. And, you know, one of the ironies is,
1: just off the top, just as an estimate, I haven't done this research, but if you asked me how many verses are there in the Bible that directly or indirectly condemn the rich, I would say about a thousand. There's a lot. A thousand yeah. verses, directly or indirectly condemning the rich, because there's a lot about economic justice. There's yeah. a lot about, um, y- you know, literally, if you're rich, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Like Jesus literally said today. that. Yeah. yeah. And so. Uh, So there's there's a lot and there's a lot of also in not just condemning the rich, but also upholding a vision of equality and justice and sharing your goods with one another, which, like I said, indirectly condemns the rich. Yeah. So. So, yeah. Why not harp on those thousand verses rather than these handful that that don't actually have the currency that people think they do? Correct.
0: Correct. Anything else you want to say about uh, this story with Ed Smart?
1: No, other than that, it gives me hope that our narrative is changing in the church. I think that people, people are waking up to obvious things like, oh, it's not a choice and it can't be fixed. And then that will get them to, oh, it shouldn't be fixed. or it, you know, And then if it can't be fixed and it shouldn't be fixed, and if it's a normal God-created part of our lives, why don't we have room for, for us? I think once people ask these questions, it puts them in a, in a state of cognitive dissonance from which there is no escape other than the right way. Mm. And that is true even when people say all – even when church leaders say all these awful things about us. I hate to say that there's a silver lining to that, but the silver lining is to that is people will realize that all those awful things aren't even true. And it will create such a cognitive dissonance that it will lessen the authority of the leaders more than it will lessen the dignity of my life. Mm. And I think once, once that cognitive dissonance kicks in, it will delegitimize all those awful things that, are, that they're saying about us that are completely not true. Mm. And in some ways, they are, uh, they're, uh, they're setting themselves up for failure when they speak so awfully about my people.
0: One day we're going to have to have this uh, conversation about how we help people navigate that. Because, you know, one of my more regrettable, not regrettable, but one experience that really hurts me to see is when, you know, you see people experience this cognitive dissonance. They don't know what to do with it and they just ultimately end up leaving the church. You know what I'm saying? There's just this idea that if our leaders can be wrong or if, in fact, We have brought ourselves to this point where we can't reconcile what we believe with what our leaders have said or what the church has taught in the past, that we simply can't be a part of the church anymore. And I feel like too many people, I I mean, one reason I I enjoy, you know, being here with you, Derek, and having this podcast as well as, you know, having other conversations about this is just, we, we, we create space for there to be human error with regard to our, with our church leaders. And I feel like if more people are able to embrace that now, then why the time they come to this realization that our leaders have been, you know, less than correct about these mm-hmm. issues with regard to the LGBTQ community, that they can still have a place here, that they can still stay. But too many people, when they experience this cognitive dissonance, there's no space for error in the church or in the leaders, and they feel like they have to leave. Like at some point, I do want to have this conversation where we discuss more pointedly how we can help hold space for these folks who are experiencing this cognitive dissonance so they d- so they don't feel like they have to leave if they, if they do experience it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I've used this analogy of the violin on the podcast before, but even if I have, it's probably been a long time ago, so I'm going to say it again. All right. I remember one of my friends plays the viola for the Utah Symphony, and he was telling me how his violin, he also plays the violin, how his violin became unglued and he had to take it to the repair people to uh, to get it fixed. And I thought to myself, why don't they use stronger glue, right? And he said they intentionally use weaker glue because you would rather have the seam come apart than the wood to crack.
2: Okay.
1: And my analogy here is There's certain things in the church that we should hold lightly, because if we hold them too too rigidly and too narrowly, and we artificially glue them, and we focus on the glue rather than the wood, then the wood will crack, which is the fundamental parts of our testimony. Mm. So there's certain things that we wanna preserve, and there's other things that we're gonna have to hold lightly, because that's what happens. Wood shifts with temperature and humidity, and if you don't have that flexibility, your violin will crack and having a crack in your violin is much more difficult to repair than re-gluing a seam. Mm. And I think this has happened so many times for people in the church that that they'll take one, not to blame them at all, right? Because they were set up this way by the culture and by what they learned in primary and seminary and all this other stuff, it's not their fault. But they've held on to like, oh, the leaders can never make a mistake or nothing they say over the pulpit could ever be wrong. That's, and they're fixating on that, rather than on Christ. Yeah. And so what will happen is that glue that they held so tightly about this certain unrealistic expectation of our leaders that has fallen apart and it, or they've held on to that and that it's cracked their testimony of Christ. Mm. And I think this is uh this is a, this is a lesson we should learn there are some things that we should hold lightly and we need to be able to be flexible with uh when reality hits and when we get new data and and we may have to, uh, and of course I'm going to have to change a lot of my assumptions as I get more data. And there's, and I'm, of course, there's a lot of things that I'm wrong about. I just need to know what they are. Right. And just holding certain things lightly and flexibly will help create a more durable faith that's not brittle, that will, that will accommodate new, New, even new revelation, even. Mm. Um, you know, there's people that left the church after 1978 because they didn't, th- they couldn't think that that was that that revelation was from God. They're like, no, we gotta leave. Right. There were I'm prophets
0: like, that said before this would never happen. Yeah. And then it happened, and it's just like, what do I do now?
1: Yeah. So, um, and there's similarly in 19, I think it was 1984 when the what's now the Community of Christ, the reorganized. Um, allowed the ordination of women. A large number of their people left as well, thinking, "Oh, that that can't happen." Hmm. So I'm I'm just thinking there's certain things that we need to to focus on the core, to preserve the the wood, right, and be a little bit more flexible with the
0: glue. Because if you have it backwards, the whole thing will be destroyed. Totally agree. One day we'll have to have a conversation about how we can shift the culture in that direction. Because that is going to I feel like that's going to be our Salvation one day, I don't know how, but
1: yeah, and it's the margins that will hold the center. Yeah,
0: and that's why it's important to have
1: diversity among the leadership as well to model some of that to get yeah. fresh voices in, different perspectives, um, different models of of like, oh, look, there's a place for me
0: in the church. Yeah, this seems like a good time to move into the Come Follow Me. But before we do that. Let us just remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week for the Come Follow Me, it's the Christmas lesson. Which means we don't have a specific um I mean, we're not going to be moving into the next book of Revelation or the next part of Revelation just yet. We're actually going to be focusing on several verses that, you know, are typically used to discuss the Christmas story. You know, Luke 2 and all those other verses. And uh, Derek and I just want to take a moment to highlight certain parts of this story or certain principles that we learn from the Christmas story hoping that we could briefly discuss these parts of the Christmas story or these lessons from the Christmas story that we can discuss and kind of go from there. I I do want to talk about um, what the Christmas story teaches us about allyship. So uh, I want to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there any particular parts of the story or lessons about the story or perspectives that you want to discuss, Derek?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I don't know exactly what I'm going to say until I get there, so let's just <laughs> go with it.
0: Is there any? Uh, is there any? Uh, like normally, before we discuss a come follow me lesson, we yeah. usually have you set the stage and talk about the context. Is there anything like that you want to do before we dive right into the Christmas story? Well,
1: maybe I think three of the texts that come out, come to mind are Luke one and two. Um, Matthew 1 and then John 1 which isn't really seen as a Christmas but it's definitely about the incarnation the word becoming flesh yes and there's just those are all different um, layers of the tradition we've got obviously dating back to the Jesus of history some authentic traditions that get circulated and then Matthew takes some of those and Luke takes his and then John uh, doesn't even have an infancy narrative Right and neither does Mark, and so what I'm saying is there's room for realizing the human fingerprints all over these stories that there's uh there's room for different perspectives and seeing where they where they go and one of the cool things about what Matthew and Luke want us to do is they want us to f- to read these stories in light of the salvation history of Israel okay it's not just some cutesy little uh hallmark window right here this is sort of the culmination of God's story with Israel and you're supposed to I think in Matthew and Luke's in their mind you're supposed to read these stories knowing the hopes that Israel has been expecting Messiah knowing that how God has worked that God has been with his people and God has worked in surprising ways and miraculous ways and just reading these birth and infancy narratives in that context, is probably the the, the background that I want to say for these.
0: I see, Kate. Can you say a little bit more about that in terms of uh, reading it in that context? Because this is this is relatively new to me.
1: Well, oh man, how much time do you have? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right. Uh, time is time is relatively short, but you know, it'd be cool to it'd be cool. Well, to say let me just say one that. thing. Yes, sir.
1: First century Judea w- or Galilee was not a good place to be Uh um, if you were Jewish. You were dominated by Rome. You were not free as a people. You were, even though you were in the land of Israel, in some sense, spiritually, you were were still in exile because you were not uh, a self-determining people. There was this expectation of deliverance, a long-promised Messiah, a king. You know, even reaching back to the Exodus story, there's, there's echoes of the Exodus story in Matthew's account. Right, right. There's... Um, you know, and Matthew explicitly quotes the prophecies of Isaiah. If you look at the Magnificat in Luke one, which is Mary's song, it's very similar to Hannah's song in Second Samuel two, all right. um, where she's talking about her, how God favored her and how how she's victorious, and um, just seeing all these political uh deliverance themes. Woven in you, yeah, that's kind of where it is. You've got all of this context, and this then is is uh and, and even Luke two starts out with with the empire, yeah, with Caesar Augustus doing his will among the people, right, uh-huh. decreeing that there should be a census, and so yeah. you that's the backdrop for all of this, and to say, to think of it, oh, it's just a cute baby. Look, Herod, even Herod didn't think, oh, it's just a cute baby. There was something that Herod <laughs> yeah. was threatened by.
2: Right. A new
1: king of the Jews. There yeah. is something political and economic to what's going on here. Yeah. Something that, that tears open hev- heaven, and now we have God among us. Yeah. This is something profound.
0: Yeah. This might be a good time to move into this uh, Jesus Christ as an immigrant narrative because uh, the traditional story of, you know, The birth of Christ and nativity and all that stuff is rather quickly interrupted by this second narrative of violence and fear Mm -hmm. of Jesus and his family having to flee to Egypt just to get away from, you know, massacre or whatever. Like, this is what's happening a lot today. There are people fleeing violence and poverty and war and massacre just so they can go to a safe—well, to a safer land— uh, and that's basically what Jesus and his family were doing. We're fleeing that, fleeing that massacre to a safer land. That's, this is something we see rather quickly after the birth of Christ. So, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, we often focus on the cutesy narrative of Jesus being born in humble means, but we also move violently and quickly into Jesus and his family fleeing violence and persecution to a safer land. I also want to say that in the
1: in the first century there was a large and vibrant community of Jews in Alexandria, Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm suspecting, this isn't in the text, but what I'm suspecting is that Mary Joseph and Jesus when they when they figured out where we're we going to go, they probably thought to themselves, "Oh, here's a place that will take us in." Yeah. They wouldn't have gone there presumably unless they had some reassurance of hospitality there and that goes to show that the lesson we learn is like are we a hospitable pe- well, people do we have room for refugees are right. we known as a safe place a place that you can get to and and that's we in america sadly that's not true
0: mm. it it it's uh i mean it's it's a little chilling to think that you know if Jesus were born today. Like, would he have a place here? Like, would he be be able to come to America, or would his family be able to be like, this is a safe place Mm -hmm. for us? We can come here to flee this persecution, but only to realize that America, unfortunately, a presumably Christian nation, is not welcome.
1: Yeah, and it gets gets back to, especially in Luke's narrative, how God chooses the poor. And this is really clear with uh, Mary, what she says. It's really clear with the shepherds who were, were lower class. Now, some people have gotten this idea that the shepherds were somehow uh, outlaws or troublemakers or something like that. That, uh-huh. But I think that comes from a later, uh, later under later rabbinic understanding. But in the biblical narrative, shepherds were seen as positive. You know, David was the shepherd. Um, the Lord was the shepherd of Israel in Psalm twenty-three. Shepherds are good; they're they're lower class, right? But um, they're not uh, they're not uh, sort of these troublemakers that some people have said they are. But but it's interesting how God surprises. It, this is there's this whole reversal of fortune about you know the last shall be first. Yeah, and which teaches us who to think about who's on top here, even in our church, like who's and those who are who are first right now should be should be careful cuz that gets yeah. completely turned upside down. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in the emperor to the to the emperor. Um the savior of the world was bo- born in a, in a, in poverty in very humble means. Um they didn't even have room uh in their dwelling place right. in uh, in Luke's in Luke's narrative. So um yeah
0: this is also a good time to bring up one of the like something that really stood out to me about the the birth of christ narrative was the fact that he was born into this poverty and one of the references that's actually in the uh, come follow me manual that talks about the condescension of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, refers directly to a scripture that I believe we've read on this show before, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It's probably one of my new favorite scriptures with regard to the condescension of Christ because it illustrates not only this point that you just brought up, Derek, the fact right. that the Lord uses the poor, but also the fact that there is a purpose to Christ's poverty. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read this verse in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. In the context of uh, this verse, I believe Paul is teaching uh, the Corinthians about how they ought to take care of each other, particularly talking about uh, the welfare system in the Mm -hmm. church, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, the verse here says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. This is extremely i mean this is quite beautiful to me and illustrative of how we ought to be with people on the margins because what this is telling us is that christ basically embraced poverty he embraced he 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 shed all of his privilege for the express purpose of providing that same privilege providing that same opportunity to us like this is christ somebody who was for all intents and purposes, a god. He had the rights and privileges of godhood, and he shed all of that in order that we might overcome what obstacles we had and and eventually obtain all that he was and all that he would be. That, to me, is very powerful, and it tells, and it says, and it illustrates two things to me about allyship in particular. One is that in order to help people on the margins, you have to be willing to an extent, you, you don't have to do all that Christ did. I mean, that's what the atonement was for. We don't have to do everything that Christ did in order to obtain what he now has. But part of allyship is being willing to shed our privilege or being mm-hmm. willing to share our privilege that people on the margins might be able to come up, you know? And, you know, this is a fear that I feel a lot of people in positions of privilege have. They feel like uh, human rights is like a zero sum game or that because other people. Uh, come up that means that they have to come back and that's not totally true that's not that's not true in the sense of having your human rights represented or respected rather but in the sense of you know having privilege or having access uh, we do have to be willing to forfeit some of our privilege And most times we don't actually have to forfeit any. We just have to be willing to share it. Um, But in this case of Jesus Christ, he showed us that he was willing. And not only that he was willing, but he did actually shed his privilege so that we might be able to have some as well. The second thing was we know how this story ends for Jesus. You know, ultimately, Jesus is given glory more than he had before he left before Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. like ultimately there was nothing lost to jesus in fact he gained even more than he had lost ultimately and this is something else we can learn from that narrative is that if we are willing to share what we have with people on the margins ultimately what is added on to us is far more than what we have lost and that is something else that we can gain from something else we can learn from the story of jesus when it comes to allyship is that ultimately what we gain is far more than what we lose by sharing access or by forfeiting access that others may have some.
1: Yes, and that's exactly sort of the other side of the coin of the fact that all of these oppressions hurt all of us because it Correct. doesn't allow the opp- you know the oppressors to be fully themselves and to be fully free. It yeah. looks not to say that that it's at all equivalent to what the oppressed are feeling,
0: but Jesus Christ's glory would not have been able to be right. fully realized without our without without our ability to come up. Like Jesus Christ would like his mission the whole purpose of the earth would utterly be wasted if he did not share his privilege yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt
1: no that's that's pretty much what i was going to say and that really ties into let's go to luke chapter one um i'm gonna read so mary's song although she's not explicitly said to sing this it says mary said um but i've often seen this as a song because it's so similar to hannah's song or the song no And I have sung it many times in many different, uh, arrangements by different composers. But anyway, so let's go to, uh, this is Luke chapter one. Well, I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's so beautiful. (laughs) 46 through 55. And Mary said, okay, and this is when Elizabeth, uh, greets Mary and comes to visit her. Um i and, and where Mary greets Elizabeth. Mary visits Elizabeth. Um, and then this is what Mary says, how she feels. About, this is, by I just want to say, it's very rare that we have large blocks of text by women oh, yeah. in the scriptures. So yeah. we should really uh, uplift this and say, here is a place where a woman speaks for many, many verses, not even to a man, to uh-huh. another woman, yeah. and does not get corrected afterward. which actually happens uh, frequently in uh, in the Bible is a woman will speak and then get corrected by a man. Frequently, period. But that doesn't happen here. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked on the humble position of his servant. Now, this humble position could be that she was um, in a very precarious position with her pregnancy, right? Because there was... There's something going on here. She and uh, her husband Joseph had not come live together yet, and now she's pregnant, and she's got a problem. Yep. Right? Um, And also could be her poverty as well. Uh, But anyway, because he has looked on the humble position of his servant. Behold, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things to me, and holy is his name and his mercy from generation to generation is on those who fear him. This is what I was saying back when I said that Matthew and Luke both want us to read this story in the context of what God has always done for God's people, Okay. seeing you know, that God is always with them, that God works in surprising and miraculous ways towards their liberation. Mm. 51, he has acted in power with his arm, and he scattered the proud by the thought of their hearts. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. Now this, now this should make Herod and Trump quake. He brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. This is something that I would hear Bernie Sanders or AOC <laughs> say, and Trump would not say this. Right. right. He filled the hungry with good, um, and the rich he sent away empty. He helped his servant Israel to remember mercy. And he said to our fathers, to Ab- as he said to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants for eternity. So basically.
0: Derek, you're right. First off, like this isn't even something you got to read into the text. It's right here. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I didn't see this before, but this is uh, this is super helpful. Thank you for reading that whole thing. And, yeah. Uh, yeah this, is, yeah, this is right in there. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt.
1: And um, so basically she's appealing to how God has, what God promised her ancestor Abraham, what God promised to, uh, the deliverance that God has always promised to God's people. Just all of this stuff is in here. The overturning of the mighty from their thrones, the lifting up of the lowly. Yeah. The sending the rich away empty-handed and, and filling the hungry with good things. This is radical. Yeah. And... Something that uh, that Elizabeth Schustler Fiorenza says. She's a, a feminist New Testament scholar. You're <laughs> quoting her. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I love it though, man.
1: She said that. Um, I hope I. I don't know if I'm gonna get this exactly right, but it's it's not just that a woman says this, but she says this as a woman. Yeah. Right. And I think her her entire lived experience as a woman. Puts weight and context to this. And it's not just, oh, it just happens to be a woman, but that she's saying this as a woman and her womanness is fully present when she's saying all of these things is yeah. also significant. Yeah. Because many times women, um, our feminist interpreters say w- women are basically forced to identify with the male figures in the text. Okay. That is, the prodigal son, all these other figures. Whenever you have a figure, it's mostly about men. So women have been socialized to see themselves whenever it says he or whenever it says whatever. Um, but here is a place where her, her identity as a woman is, is still fully present. And she's talking to a fellow woman, Elizabeth. And I should bring up the other woman that's part of the birth narrative, which is Anna, the woman prophet in Luke 2. Who gets to uh meet the messiah mm. and so there's uh and it, so women in the sense are are present in the in the text, but as the tip of the iceberg, we realize there must be more about women that we don't get to see right there must be something under under all of this there there must be women behind the scenes, there must be women, so we should always listen to um. Look for who's who's mentioned in the text, who's not mentioned in the text, who benefits from the way the text is written, um, and realize that there's uh, and t- sort of reconstructing the missing voices. Is, um, that's that's basically what's what's called the hermeneutic of suspicion in New Testament scholarship is reading. Um, reading the text almost against the grain to figure out, well, who's not there and whose voices yeah. should have been there and how can we reconstruct what would have happened? Like, there would have been a midwife that's not mentioned at mm. the birth of Jesus. Things like that. And and realize that, yeah, there's, there's fruitful endeavors here, ways that we can, uh, certain reading strategies that can open up engagement with the text. Lovely. That's really cool.
0: I like that. Alright, anything else on... Uh, on the what would you, what you call this again in uh, the, magnificat. the magnificat the yeah. magnificat okay anything else you want to say about the magnificat before uh, moving on to other thoughts you may have no that's that's it for now all right cool that is it for now I, I feel like this is a bit of a tease Derek I feel like you got a lot more you want to say well, about
1: <laughs> like there's like we could, like what other parts of Matthew or Luke do you want to talk about
0: oh gosh I don't want to talk about any other things because like. What I was able to get most powerfully came out of this. Uh, I mean, was summed up pretty well in Second Corinthians eight and nine. I pretty much only wanted to talk about allyship because that's you know what I was prepared to talk about. But I knew as soon as you talked about the Magnificat, I wasn't going to have much to contribute to this because I simply have not uh, considered the uh, a, fe- a feminist reading or a feminist perspective on uh, on this narrative. I have considered more about the. Uh, the uh, immigration narrative or jesus christ and his family as refugees but again we've already discussed that so well now that now that
1: uh we should also bring out the women in matthew's account because matthew has four women in the genealogy of jesus and which is very rare i can't think of any other genealogy in the bible that when it's just naming a whole bunch of uh generations that actually embeds and some of the women. women. Yeah. So the women we have in the genealogy, according to Matthew, we've got Tamar, we've got Rahab, we've got Ruth, and we've got Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, all of whom um, have very interesting stories in the scriptures. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are outsiders, some of them overcome different, different obstacles, some of them are... Um, all of them express righteousness in an outsider's way or in an unusual way, in some way. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, we've got Mary at the end of the genealogy listed um, as the mother of Jesus. We don't have Eve in uh, in uh, in in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus because Gene- Matthew starts with Abraham. Right. But I think there's some extent to some extent we've got a very fruitful comparison between Eve and Mary Mm. that can be made. Okay. Both having a critical part in the salvation history of people and what they, what they brought into the world, what they, um, how they navigated, what they, what they were given. Um, they're just amazing things that, that both play, played a crucial role and an, an essential role in, uh, in the, in the salvation his history of our people Okay Let's see other things to say about About um, Yeah I think Well let me just look at the text In Matthew and see if there's anything else I want to say Okay um, I think it's important to point out Like we've already s- said the condescension of God um, there's, there's, uh, of course the, the manger I think is important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like I've, I've already brought out, uh, that's in Luke two, the whole manger part of it, that God doesn't appear to the, the rich of the world that God, uh, appears in a, in a very humble circumstance and then calls over the shepherds. I just, I just find it, I th- I think if p- people are powerful and they aren't threatened by this story, they actually haven't understood it.
2: <laughs> Good point.
1: You know, because even with the clues within the narrative itself about how Herod responds,
2: yeah, that should he tell you scared.
1: that. Um, and Matthew says not not uh, not just Herod, but all Jerusalem with him was was troubled. Yeah, this is this is real, and I think this should. Uh, should give us some some hope here certainly certainly like t- to f- to realize whose side god is on um that the first shall be last and the last shall be first and that god works in surprising and miraculous ways hmm. you know people who say well the church will never change on this like have you looked at what god has done
2: throughout <laughs> the history of our
1: people god has surprised people who thought who n- never thought this could happen and then it happened
2: yeah
0: like, whoops like
1: yeah <laughs> like anyone who says that doesn't know God or doesn't know the record of God like
0: yeah I I, I get I, I get what you're trying to say like the principles the gospel or you know the doctrine of Christ like when you really get down to it doesn't change but all the time like we've just seen God moving among his people basically just giving us all the ways to partake of his goodness and making the necessary adjustments to do so. Like, this has happened all throughout his dealings with his children. And it always... I don't know. Like I saw this funny meme on the, one of the uh, Christian pages I follow about mm-hmm. somebody saying God never changes, and then it lists a bunch of stuff that God has changed, and then it has that shocked Pikachu face under all of the... <laughs> and I'm just like, Yeah, come on, guys. Can we? Do we really get a right to be shocked by any of these changes that God has made among our people or any of these ways that he's moved among us when this is how he's always operated? This is how he's always mm-hmm. moved. The reason that you're shocked, the real reason that you're shocked, is because something has disrupted your comfort or something has disrupted you in some way and you want to act like the way that you've been living your life has been totally fine. The real reason you're shocked is because you have to make a change now. That is the real reason that you're shocked. I do have a question, Derek. Yeah. Unless you got another point you want to make here. So um, this is a bit of a more shallow question but I know it's going to come up in Sunday School and I do want to take this opportunity to ask you, Derek, simply because I do value your input on this. But uh, how do you wish people would celebrate Christmas? Like what is, how ought we to celebrate Christmas with this knowledge that, like in the context of these things that we've discussed today? How would you like people to celebrate Christmas? Well,
1: let me back up and tell you a story. That's actually how Jesus taught. He says, let me tell you a story. (laughs) So... (laughs) I was going to settle in for about a, a three-hour session of studying the New Testament one one day last week. Of course you were. That and I got a call from someone who was newly baptized into our ward, an adult convert. And so I took the call, and she said um, that she had fallen on the ice, and she is at Mount Auburn Hospital. And... And just earlier, that, so she was just baptized that day. She was baptized that day, and the elders quorum president came up to me and said, hey, would you like to be her ministering brother? I'm like, sure. And now that I'm in her ministering brother, I, I've gotta, gotta, so I, I went to uh, I went to the hospital and visited her that, that evening, which I, I hate to admit this, but part of me really wanted to stay home and study more of the New Testament. <laughs> but I knew Paul would have would have chastised me for that because Paul was all about living in community and the practical reality and implementation of this because if I had a choice between reading the living reading the New Testament that evening and actually living it Paul would say you got to go out and live it yeah and so I did I went um visited her in the hospital helped comfort her as she was preparing for surgery the next day, we um, gave her the gift of the Holy Ghost there in the hospital. And it was a very profound, uh, profound moment. And I'm so glad I went. Um, But if, but here's, so this is the long way around to your question of like, how do people celebrate Christmas? If it doesn't change your life and you don't live and move in the world differently because of this story, then you haven't understood it. Mm. That this story should ref- should break into your life and find avenues of reflecting out into, other, into the service of other people. And I think there is a sort of a gimmicky approach to service at Christmas time that people think, oh, well, this is... Hashtag uh, there's like also, the world. <laughs> there's also a real and authentic approach to service at this time of the year that should infuse the whole year. Yeah, With a spirit of service that when someone needs you You get up and go um, I just think that there's That's kind of I, How people celebrate How I think people should celebrate Christmas Is it needs to make a difference in your life You know the Puritans actually uh, Prohibited The celebration of Christmas They did not like holidays Because that's there's, there's no holidays in the New Testament for us Um, there's, we shouldn't sell, there's no celebration of Christmas in the Bible, so we shouldn't do it. Well, they were no fun. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, uh, but I think there's finding light and hope also, also finding time to worship God, which is what, what people did at at the first Christmas at the manger, you know, glorifying God. Um, the, the Magi came and, and worshiped Christ there's there's a sense of awe and wonder figuring out where where you can see God's glory that you weren't expecting it is part of the Christmas story. Yeah. And just worshiping having it. And which I like to worship through music as well. Yeah. Through music, through prayer, through uh, communing with other people, family, friends. That's to me what celebrating Christmas is about. And notice I didn't even mention presents. Right or Santa mm-hmm. right that's not what Christmas is about to me Christmas is the type of thing that uh, if the powers that be knew what it was they would they would uh, hate it <laughs> so I'm going to ask the same thing to you what do you think how do you think
0: cri- Christmas oh, should gosh. be celebrated you're going to make me follow that <laughs> I, I really can't add a lot I, and I don't think I should add a lot more to what you said Derek I really feel like you've articulated perfectly what I feel Christmas ought to be. And also I've already spoken a lot during this episode, but like, I think if there's anything I could add or would want to add, it's just a, it's just a reiteration of something that you said that I thought was a whole word. If the season of Christmas does not move you to be a better person, does not move you to be a better follower of Christ, if it doesn't move you to embody these principles that we have discussed today and these principles that Christ has been teaching throughout the New Testament and that his mission teaches us in return that we're not getting, that we don't get Christmas, that we don't Mm -hmm. understand it. So um, I would just uh, add my witness to what you said, Derek, and simply say that I would just like folks to embody the teachings of Christ and also to do so not just during the Christmas season, not just during the hashtag like the world season, but all year round. Mm-hmm. That is how I know that we are internalizing Christmas. Not to say that there isn't some grace to be given here. Like I, everybody falls short of the glory of God, you know, and I want to give people that that grace. But I also do want to acknowledge that every Christmas Like, everybody makes New Year's resolutions, you know what I'm saying? I feel like Christmas is a great time for that, you know what I'm saying? I feel like Christmas should be that time where we're, like, in essence, having an extended sacrament meeting, you know? Because, like, sacrament meeting is that time where we really just review the week, where we take inventory of the week, Mm -hmm. we see where we failed, and we see where we can be better, and we, in essence, carry that into the next week. I feel like the holiday season, like the Christmas season, is basically – the month of sacrament meeting, you know what I'm saying? It's the month where we really internalize the principles of Christ, see where we've fallen short, and go into the new year knowing that we can and will be better as a result of the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what I think, that's what I feel like Christmas in practice is for, or should be for.
1: Yeah, that's very well said. Yeah, thank you so
0: much for that. Thank you, because I was worried about how that was going to come out. And like I said, I've already spoken a lot during this episode, so as long as it's clear... Then I can be happy with that, that I, I feel like that's a good note to end on as well, right and since that it's christmas good. i don't I don't feel like being angry today. Yeah. I am, but you know, I got a Carol in like ten minutes, so I also yeah. want to carry good vibes into the christmas season right do Do you have anything else you want to share before we go into housekeeping, Derek? Nope, that's it. All right. so Derek, where can folks find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. dot com
1: you can also find us on Facebook. And Instagram. Facebook
0: and Instagram, yes. And Twitter. And Twitter. Find us on Twitter as well. And uh, the one thing I want to just briefly go over, I want to tell you guys about another excellent podcast in the Dialogue Podcast Network called the Mormon News Report. They cover the week in Mormon news with a healthy dose of snark and commentary. Join Brent and Jenny every Monday to get caught up on all the top stories you need to stay up to date on the top stories in Mormon news. Again, the name is the Mormon News Report. Got a cool little graphic that looks like NPR, but it's MNR. It's really nice. Anyway, that's all I got to say. Any other housekeeping items, Derek? Nope, that's it. Excellent. Then we will see you guys in the following week. Have a great Christmas season. Yes, have a great Christmas. Bye.